That is, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and she found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And after taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Aphrathatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. I love the trajectory that Dave set us on this morning, both through his words and prayer and through the songs that we've sung. Because this is a story about grace. This is a story about the gospel. And as we unpack these two accounts, I want us to do so, as always, uh, around three truths that I want to draw out and, and use to, to walk us through these stories. And the first one is this. Jesus loves to give to those who know they don't deserve. Jesus loves to give to those who know they don't deserve. I want to read something to you. It says, nominate a deserving person in need. Do you know an amazing person that could use help? Maybe it's a person who always puts your needs before their own. Someone who keeps a positive attitude through tough times. Or a neighbor who has changed your community. Or a teacher who goes above and beyond. Does this person deserve a vacation or a car? This description, word for word, is off the website of a very familiar, very famous talk show that's on TV these days. We love these kinds of stories. I love these kinds of stories where the unsuspecting, deserving teacher or educator comes on and receives a car or a vacation to Tahiti. It's good for people. It's good for us to see people get what they deserve. 
But what if the talk show gave the car not to the hardworking kindergarten teacher, but to the struggling heroin addict on the streets of Seattle? How would that make us feel? Would that rub us just a little bit the wrong way? As we jump back into the life of Jesus, Jesus is heading north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The geography is not so significant except for the fact that Jesus is going outside of the borders of Israel. And the reason he is going outside of the borders of Israel is because quite a stir has been created among his people. And he can't find, as we've seen in the last couple weeks, Jesus can't find any rest among his people. And so he goes outside of the borders of Israel to a house, some house. We don't know the circumstances or the specific nature of this house. But Jesus goes there to, to get away, to rest. And yet, as Mark tells us, the plan doesn't work. At least it seems that way from our perspective. But with Jesus, of course, this, this encounter at this house that was supposed to be a retreat, this isn't a mistake. This isn't a failure on his part. No, this is providence. And so Jesus' reputation precedes him even to the regions outside of the borders of Israel. And he's confronted by a woman. A woman who is disqualified and undeserving in every way. And Mark almost builds this up to a crescendo. Number one, she's a woman. We don't know if she's a single mom. We don't know if she's a widow. But there's not a man by her side. And she's in a culture that is dominated by men. Number two, she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Now, to another Gentile, this was no big deal to be a Gentile, right? But if you were a Jew and you were a non-Jew, this was a big deal because the God of Israel had made it clear that Gentiles were unclean. We've seen that before. And then she's also Syrophoenician. Almost as if Mark underlines the fact, like, she's been this way since she was born. Matthew's account adds, as he records this same event, Matthew's account adds that she was actually a Canaanite. Remember the land of Canaan, the land that God told Joshua to go in and to, to wipe all of that people out? You see, this woman, just besides the fact that Jesus is there to rest and to get away, this woman shouldn't be here with Jesus. She shouldn't be talking to Jesus. She's not even entitled to do that. And nevertheless, she comes. And why does she come? Well, we left off one of the final descriptors that Mark gives for her. She has a daughter who is possessed by a demon, an unclean spirit. Well, there it is. There's the third strike against her. But have you ever seen a mom with a sick child? <laughs> have you ever been a mom with a sick child? 
See, this mom was desperate. And desperate moms are a force to be reckoned with, let me tell you. And so this woman comes breaking all social norms. And she comes to Jesus, and she doesn't just ask Jesus politely, but what does Mark tell us that she does? She falls before him. She begs him. And the Greek tense seems to indicate here that she keeps begging and pleading. She's relentless. Now, knowing what we know about our Savior, about what we've learned about him, about the picture that has been painted for him, even in Mark up into this point, what do we expect Jesus to do? Maybe we expect him to to lean over, to, to help her up and say, woman, get up, don't cry. Let's go. Let's go see your daughter. But he doesn't, does he? In one surprising sentence, he rattles us. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And we say, whoa. Did Jesus just imply that this woman was was a dog? And indeed, that's what Jesus did. You see, for generations, indeed, since the birth of the nation, Jews were instructed to be set apart from the nations around them. To reflect the holiness of God. The God who had revealed his name to them, who had made them his treasured possession. The Israelites, the Jewish people were set apart And the nations around them were unclean. Just read the book of Leviticus and you will see a host of things that are unclean for Jewish people. Read Leviticus 11.27 and you'll realize that dogs are unclean to Jewish people. And so dogs was an appropriate albeit insulting, designation for Gentile uncleanness and outsider status. Jesus himself had already spoken about this. He had spoken like this in Matthew 7, 6, when he said, do not give to dogs what is holy. Paul will use it in Philippians 3 after this. In Philippians 3, 2, where he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so when Jesus says this statement, to this woman, it's shocking. And Jesus intends it to be shocking. But it's also a reflection of the context of his day. God had elected Israel. Jesus had come for the lost sheep of Israel, not for those outside. His children are the ones who need food. But here's the thing. There's more to it. Because Jesus' comment to her, Jesus, that one sentence is not merely a raw insult. It's actually a one-sentence parable. First of all, the woman doesn't receive it as an insult, does she? She doesn't get her back up. She doesn't 
bite back at Jesus. We'll get to that response of the woman in just a moment. But there's some nuance to Jesus' statement that I don't want you to miss here because this is shocking and confusing. First of all, this picture that Jesus is giving in that one sentence, the picture that Jesus is giving is a Gentile scene. It's not a Jewish one. Gentiles, a Gentile family, they would have a dog in the house vacuuming the floor, as some of you have, vacuuming the floor underneath the dining room table. Jews would never have a dog in the house. Leviticus eleven twenty seven. Jews consider dogs unclean. So the picture Jesus is giving, even in this one-line sentence, is a Gentile scene. He's speaking to her in a way that she can understand, in a way that is for her. Secondly, the word that Jesus uses here for dogs is not the common word, the word that is used every other time to describe a mangy, stray, unclean dog on the street, which is how Jews considered dogs. No, this word that Jesus uses, if if a word for dog can have any more tendency, it's almost like a pup. And then the third thing that we can't miss is that Jesus uses the word first. Let the children be fed first. You see, this woman likely knows her lack of entitlement as she comes to Jesus. And yet Jesus throws in that word first, almost as if to say that the children's food will be shared with the pups eventually. And so when you take all these things together, the context that Jesus is speaking in, the scene that he's painting for her, the the word, the specific word that he uses that isn't used anywhere else, what Jesus is saying is, is more like this, possibly. You know what we Jews are supposed to think of you, right? Do you really think it's appropriate for you to come and ask for a share? You see, Jesus, through this jolting, what seems to be insulting parable, is testing this woman. He is testing this woman. Is she someone who has come looking to him as just another miracle worker that she's going to try next? Or does she really believe that he can do something for her? Jesus is inviting her to respond. And respond she does. Right about Jesus' comparison of her to a dog, she's not offended by it. She seizes it and she actually uses it to, to bolster her case against Jesus. She knows who she is. She knows that she's undeserving. Yet if the dogs are eating the crumbs that the children drop in your little parable, Jesus, then the dogs and the children are eating at the same time, right? 
And the children are getting what they've been served. Nothing is being taken from them. There is no interruption in their meal. And Jesus, all I need is a crumb. Do you see how the woman responds and just picks that apart? And Jesus says, oh, how beautiful is this woman's humble trust. How bold is her assertion, give me what I don't deserve. And this is just the kind of gutsy faith that Jesus loves to bless. You see, this woman gets it so much more than even some of his disciples do. And so he heals her. He heals her daughter in an instant from a distance. Jesus loves to give to those who know they don't deserve. And the power of Jesus is almost an afterthought in this. The fact that he would just dispel the realm of darkness, this unclean spirit from her daughter without even laying eyes on her. Brothers and sisters, there's so much for us to be challenged and encouraged by as we look at this passage. How about the radical grace of Jesus? How about the bold, confident, assertive coming to Jesus in faith? How about our own spiritual pride or entitlement? Is that a hindrance to our humble helplessness before the Lord? Let me remind you of the promises that are yours. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then draw, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and help and grace in time of need. Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near. In 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The Syrophoenician woman reminds us that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how unqualified you feel, Jesus loves to give to those who know they don't deserve. That's grace. And that's all of us. Thanks be to God. But as we build on this As we move to this next account that follows close after, the second truth I want us to see for just a moment is this. Jesus loves to meet you in your need. Jesus loves to meet you in your need. You see, Jesus remains on the outside of the borders of Israel. That's not to say he's ministering solely to Gentiles. There were Jews that had wandered outside of the borders of Israel as well. And so here in this region here in the city Decapolis where Jesus heads. We don't know if it's Jews and Gentiles or primarily Gentiles, but this account that Mark gives us is a relatively quick one and fast one, and it's only recorded here. 
But the image that Mark gives us is a lasting image of Jesus, just as the one-sentence parable that Jesus gave the Syrophoenician women is a lasting image and statement. And the image that Jesus gives us, that Mark gives us, is a picture, I think, of the Savior's condescension and compassion. I mean, Mark's already made it clear, even in this last account, that Jesus is no medicine man. He's no mere miracle worker conjuring up incantations and and wowing with, with all kinds of rituals. No, Jesus speaks and it happens. He doesn't need to to do anything. He declares and demons from afar are are forced to flee. But but here, notice how things go down with this man that is brought to Jesus. This man who can't speak. This man who can't hear. First, Jesus pulls him away from the crowd. Now, I think probably the primary reason Jesus pulled him away from the crowd is because Jesus, remember, is seeking some respite. Jesus doesn't want the crowds to get riled up. He tries to silence them at the end of this passage. And so he doesn't want his reputation as healer to spread even faster. But also there might be a mercy here. This man's whole life, he was probably been made a spectacle. And Jesus pulls him aside, away from everyone else, with this personal one-on-one connection. And Jesus, what does Jesus do then? Jesus speaks to him. You say, speaks to him. He's, he's deaf. Yeah, I know. But do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is entering this man's world and, and essentially is, is signing what he is going to do. Through his touch, through his condescension, he places his fingers in the man's ears. He spits as a sign of substance coming out of his mouth, and he touches the man's tongue. I mean, did he really need to touch him? No, of course Jesus didn't need to touch him. But all the touching, the the physical contact, that's Jesus' compassion. That's Jesus' condescension. That's a Savior who loves to meet you in your need. He knows your need. He knows what you need. He became man for us. He knows your weakness. He knows your brokenness. And he doesn't want to remain distant. As As one writer wrote that I read this week, love seeks intimacy and the touch of Jesus is a tangible prelude of the fellowship that believers experience with him through faith. I mean, this is really such a a powerful scene of the Lord Jesus. And of course, it's effective. Verse 34, he looks up to heaven and he sighs. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Why is Jesus sighing? Think of it as kind of a groan. Jesus is is moaning. Jesus has entered our world. He has put on our flesh. He has walked in the brokenness. And it's affecting him. 
What does Romans 8.23 say? Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Jesus is sighing at the brokenness. He's longing for what he created to be made whole. And then with one Aramaic word spoken, it happens. Literally, Mark says that the chain of the tongue is broken. And the man's ability to hear is restored, and he is set free. And of course, this miracle, this one man is simply a pointer. He is emblematic of something so much bigger that Jesus is doing, so much bigger that Jesus came to do. And that's the last truth that I want us to see for just a moment, and it's this. Jesus is the Lord of all nations. Jesus is the Lord of all nations. That's the last thing that Mark shows us in these two accounts this morning. First of all, this passage falls right in line with Mark's whole intent of his gospel. And that is to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. And this passage declares that through two very intentional phrases. The first one's at the end. He has done all things well. one can't help but think of another phrase that echoes that phrase. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made and it was good. All was created through the Son and indeed now all things are being recreated and restored through the Son. But then there's the second phrase, the tongue of the mute the tongue of the mute. This phrase is only used once. One other time, in the Greek Old Testament, or in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in Isaiah 35, Isaiah writes there, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame make then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, Mark is, is drawing his readers and his hearers' attention back to the fact that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. Right? He's done this several times. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And indeed, he says it here again. Jesus is Lord. But he's not just Lord of Israel. Jesus is Lord of all nations. You see, these two accounts of Jesus crossing borders and boundaries to set people free is just a sign of what's to come. It was even hinted at last week in our passage as Jesus made clean what was once unclean. What was once distant and far off is now being made close. And so the Gentile woman who boldly claimed crumbs from Jesus is just another pointer that every tribe and every tongue and every language and people and nation will be standing before his throne. And for the Jew, it was a challenge for them to get away from their nationalistic idolatry 
and to see the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing. And sometimes I think we have the same challenge of getting away from our nationalistic idolatry and seeing what God is doing in the world, a kingdom that is so much bigger than what we see and what we experience day to day. Jesus is Lord of all nations. Two vivid accounts, two memorable actions by Jesus that remind us to not let our spiritual pride, to not let our accomplishments get in the way of a Jesus who loves to give to those who know that they don't deserve. Whatever you're going through, Jesus knows your need. He knows your brokenness and he will meet you in that need. And then the final thing is simply to rejoice in God's plan for the nations, in the story that he's writing, a story that we're just a small sliver of. But we can rejoice in. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for Mark and for Peter and for the ways that you use them, Spirit of God, to record and to preserve these stories of our Savior that show us and that fill in the picture of who he, who he is. And as we gather this morning, thousands of years after the events that we just read about, we confess that at times it's it's hard for us to see him with the eyes of faith. It's hard for us at times to feel his nearness. To feel and to know that he knows what we're experiencing, that he loves. He loves us tenderly. I, I pray, Spirit, that you would show yourself, show the Son and that you would impress these promises and these truths on our hearts as we go from this place this day. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.